with the wonderful Dr. Oddity Bargava for episode 733. To, and for all future listeners, today is Wednesday, March 9th, 2022, to talk about the relatively recent uh, revelations about the fact that the COVID vaccine, specifically the Pfizer vaccine, I believe in the in vitro studies, shows that it does indeed uh, alter your DNA. And Dr. Bargava, who is the head of mRNA research at UCSF, this is an episode independent of that. Nothing that we say here represents that institution. This just represents Dr. Bargava and myself talking. But Dr. Bargo, for all the new listeners, please introduce yourself. Thank you, Tommy. Um, I don't think there's anything such as head of mRNA research. But that's that. <laughs> we like to. Um, so let's just keep it that I have a research program and part of that research program does uh, investigate uh, RNA and mRNA-based therapeutics. So that's where this uh, is coming from. And I also want to say that we just got a study approved to look at um, um, basically COVID-related uh, symptoms in people who are unvaccinated as well as vaccinated. So I will be sending out that survey uh, as well as looking at uh, adverse events from vaccines or no adverse events. So it's very important that we get people who are vaccinated and unvaccinated, especially unvaccinated people uh, with and without COVID to fill the survey out so that we uh, can compare whether or not there were the symptoms were mitigated with vaccine or not and whether the vaccines were indeed safe and efficacious. So that's one thing. But uh, actually in that uh, way, there was a study uh, which uh, is out from Imperial College in London. And I don't know if you heard about that. It's called the Human Challenge Clinical Trial. So it's a very interesting study in which they took about 36 healthy people, all under the age of 30. 18 to 30 years old or 18 to 40 years old uh, with no prior history of SARS. Uh, They were all unvaccinated. So thanks to the unvaccinated people, we have this data and um, and no uh, serious health conditions. So they were then um, um, recruited and exposed intranasally to a bolus of uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus. So you are now getting injected with this virus or your nose is getting exposed to huge quantities of the virus. And do you want to guess what happened? What happened? So only 18 people uh, developed the disease and the remainder didn't. Uh, So they, out of the 36 people, 18 people, two people, they had to drop out because they naturally contacted COVID. So they were um, removed from the study. But basically only 50% of the people given intranasal exposure developed COVID. All of them developed only mild symptoms. So you know, you wonder about this social distancing and exposure where here are 50% of the people who were given this virus in their uh, nose didn't develop it. So uh, something to keep in mind, which uh, has been uh, known for other respiratory illnesses as well. So, um, 
And then the other interesting thing was that of the 18 people that developed uh, mild COVID symptoms, uh, none obviously had to be hospitalized. They were actually all in the hospital. They were all quarantined. Um, and then uh, they, when they looked at their immune responses, what they found was that the neutralizing antibodies that these people developed um, didn't really, were not against spike protein. Spike was uh, the secondary um, reaction, if you like, and not as effective or efficient as the other uh, neutralizing antibodies. And so, you know, in your natural infection, it's not so much spike antibodies that play an important role. But uh, we don't, of course, keep that in mind when we compare vaccine-induced immunity. So that's, I think, a very encouraging finding that um, 50% of the people who are healthy don't get the disease. Now, as you know, that the mRNA vaccines were touted as a safer option to DNA vaccines or to the other uh, traditional vaccines. And one of the reasons why mRNA vaccine or DNA vaccines are preferred in a way are because they're just cheaper to make because you can also make them in large quantities uh, compared to uh, attenuated or dead viral vaccines, which are more traditional vaccines. So, um, so that's one reason. And to know that, of course, before August of 2021, there was no mRNA vaccine uh, ever approved for any other disease, right? So um, early on in the pandemic, there was a researcher called Rudolf Janisch from MIT. Uh, his group demonstrated that portions of SARS-CoV-2 were actually integrated in our genome. So that means, so remember, uh, SARS is an RNA virus, right? So our, our genome or our genetic material is, made, is DNA. But uh, viruses are unique that you can have certain viruses whose uh, genome is DNA-based and certain whose genome is RNA-based. So viruses such as the papilloma viruses or the chickenpox or smallpox viruses, they are all DNA viruses. And SARS and influenza, rabies, um, polio, these are RNA viruses. So... Um, when RNA viruses and, and HIV, so HIV is a special class of uh, uh, RNA virus where it's called a retrovirus. That means when it infects you or infects an individual and gets inside a cell, then uh, it has to make DNA copies of itself. So it carries a particular weapon with it, if you like, an enzyme called uh, reverse transcriptase that takes its RNA genome and uses the host machinery to then make a DNA copy of it. And then that DNA copy gets uh, integrated or inserted in our DNA, and that's at random places. So if person A was infected, that insertion can happen in say place X, and if a person Y was infected, or a person B was infected, the insertion can happen in place Y. So that doesn't have to be the same. Okay. And obviously, if let's say it got inserted in place X, and that X happened to be a very crucial gene 
uh, or of, you know region of the DNA which had a very important function, then that person is screwed. Yeah. But because most of our DNA, you know, only of uh, the three billion base pairs that we have, only twenty percent codes for uh, genome. We have a lot of these bases. And, and and that doesn't mean that eighty percent is junk. It's just that that eighty percent, a lot of it, we don't understand what it does, but it does uh, give us the safety region, right? So the chances that these viruses will get inserted in your uh, region, which is more functional, is far less. Obviously, the twenty percent target is less than the eighty percent target. So, and once that insertion happens, then the virus goes dormant. That means it's just lying low and it doesn't really have any impact on the host. And um, um, But then some years down the line, that person may develop full-blown AIDS. We don't know what triggers that virus to become activated from being dormant. Why does it? And so when it becomes activated, that means it has to come out of our genome and then start making copies. And this time it's going to make RNA copies. And so, so normally it, it was thought that this reverse transcriptase function is only encoded or by the virus. And then um, we had this discovery that in fact you eukaryotic cells, like our cells, actually have an enzyme called DNA polymerase theta. And this so as the name suggests, it, it's normally supposed to make copies of DNA, but it was found that it is actually more efficient in making um, or taking RNA from these viruses and invading pathogens and making DNA copies of those RNAs and inserting them in our genome. So it's a weird function, right? Like why would, why would we have something like that? And so one of the reasons I think we have something like that is that by um, doing it deliberately, probably it's doing it in a safer place in our region, in our DNA where it's, you know, it is not uh, coding for something or is not regulating some uh, key function. So once the it's inserted that place, then that becomes a hotspot because the virus now, if it infects, it sees some sort of a viral DNA in that place. And when it'll insert, it'll tend to go there, right? So you tend to go to where you find familiar, uh, you know, imprints or familiar sites, right? So if you, um, if you know something, you tend to gravitate towards that. So perhaps one of the functions of this DNA polymerase theta is to, to protect us by inserting uh, deliberately inserting genomes of uh, viruses in in safe places and creating these hotspots for um, the infectious viruses when they when when they want to integrate so that they'll go and uh, integrate in those spots and leave our other places it, okay. It it kind of seems like it's like why they they built the the uh, the kind of the whole. The space race, why the U.S. put all the missile pads down in Florida when it was closer to closer to the equator so you could get up there with less energy, less delta V. But it was also so if we're taking a rocket full of 100,000 gallons of fuel and it starts to go somewhere, 
It's like, let's just throw it out into the ocean or let's throw it into a field. Let's not put it over downtown Manhattan. So it's kind of a mitigation. It's a, uh, mm-hmm. the least of evils. Sorry. Right. Right. So you, you don't have so much of collateral damage. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So you can you can then control that. Right. So if you were training it, you're doing it. So um, obviously, when. Um, viruses such as SARS or coronaviruses or influenza viruses don't have their own reverse transcriptase like HIV has. So it was um, thought that these viruses don't obviously, you know, can't do this reverse transcriptase function and integrate in our genome. So when this was shown by this group uh, from MIT early on, uh, and they suggested that this is getting integrated and uh, that coronavirus is getting in SARS-CoV-2 is getting integrated into um, uh, the genome perhaps. And that's why in some people who have recovered, and if you test them by RT-PCR, they continue to show that they're positive, but they don't have any symptoms. And therefore just testing and becoming or getting positive by RT-PCR may be meaningless and especially in recovered people. So nonetheless, people, you know, didn't really pay attention to that. And, um, you know, we continued with cases, 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 just because they were positive, whether or not they had symptoms or not. And so more recently, uh, there was a, there's a paper that's um, uh, coming out, hopefully in, I think, uh, one of the nature publications, it's under review, but it's in the preprint. And this um, uh, this paper, along with another paper published in um, um, uh, one other journal, they they found that basically the portion of this mRNA vaccine from uh, Pfizer and uh, Moderna is getting uh, reverse transcribed. And obviously, which particular enzyme is doing that, we don't know. And in for, for this, what they did is they used uh, liver cells, uh, human liver cells, and they uh, transfected them or gave them the mRNA vaccine and then compared them to liver cells that didn't get the vaccine and then showed that this particular portion of the mRNA is found in the liver's uh, cells DNA, so and not in uh, is not present in the DNA from the untransfected cells that were never exposed to the mRNA vaccine, and um, so that's quite an interesting finding. They of course don't know which enzyme uh, is responsible for um, putting this back into or inserting it into our genome. They speculate that um, by giving this mRNA uh, vaccine they are putting these cells under stress and there are other, some elements called line elements, uh, which are part of other viruses, they get activated showing that, uh, suggesting that the cell is under stress. So that's a pretty um, 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 pretty, um, interesting observation and suggesting that uh, we have... um, we have a situation that needs special attention. So what what are the so what are the implications of this, right? Because 
really for someone like myself, like a layman, you just see something like it's simple. It's you see it's almost like a meme. You see all the headlines like, no, it doesn't change your DNA. And then it's, you know, oh, looks like it does. And people say, I told you so. Other people say it's not bad. But then it kind of just floats out of the out of the, the mind, myself included. What are the the implications of this? I mean, obviously, someone like yourself or someone like Dr. Malone, you guys see it and you instantly understand what it means. But to someone like me, it's like, okay, now what? What does that mean? Well, even to us, we don't know what it means, oh, right? Oh Only because we, we don't know where it's getting integrated. So they didn't, one of the caveats of the study was that they didn't show where exactly this integration is happening. So just like, you know, HIV comes and uh, infects and gets integrated in our genome, and it's different in different people, it's possible that this integration is different in different uh, genome in different people, and it's different in different cell types. So uh, by and large, it could be still in that buffer zone and we could all be still okay. And and we don't know under what condition that um, that will get activated or, or would it react with or other uh, future viruses that uh, get infect, we get infected with or an individual gets infected with. Or we don't know if this integration is happening or could happen in a potentially... Um, crucial re- region for your survival. So that's a possibility. And if that happens, then uh, it could explain some of the severe side effects that are happening in people. It could explain a number of other issues that are there. And it, it basically suggests that we need to study this more before we uh, just go keep on going gaga over it. New technologies have new problems and we need to be cognizant of that and uh, focus on uh, trying to understand what can be both the short-term implications and long-term implications. And the other um, uh, publication that came out uh, in Frontiers of Neuroscience um, by this really uh, respected um, uh, structural biologist called Tom Blundell he his group then shows that this uh, mRNA vaccine actually have hidden genes in it. So what that means is that we assume that this mRNA is only coding for spike protein, but um, we've known uh, this is known that viruses and bacteria, unlike us, don't have you know sort of one gene and one particular mRNA kind of a thing there mRNAs are sort of this contiguous things and they one particular gene will run into the second gene and the second gene runs into the third gene, which is not what happens in us. We have very distinct genes. Um, so uh, what they find is that this particular mRNA actually has potentially two other genes inside it. And they so, so you may actually, uh, people who get the mRNA vaccine, could be coding for truncated versions of proteins and some of these proteins do something else. And so when they talk about making antibodies, you know, those antibodies could be against those truncated proteins, which I have mentioned in my previous uh, uh, blogs as well as my, I think, uh, podcast with you. And, um, And the other thing is that the spike protein, of course, it's one of the three proteins that is expressed on the virus's surface. 
And because it's the biggest protein, it's the biggest target. But because it's the biggest protein, it also is very well protected by a modification called glycosylation. So just so that means is that if you were going to go out in the battlefield and somebody was going to fire at you, you're wearing a bulletproof um, suit. Mm -hmm. But let's say, you know, your face, you can't wear a bulletproof suit. So it's exposed. So the spike protein has a region called the receptor binding domain, which is more vulnerable than the rest of it. So that's where it binds that ACE2 receptor or any other receptor through which the virus can enter the cell. So that's less glycosylated or more um, uh, exposed and therefore it's more antigenic. So it's a little bit like, you know, that's the, uh, for the scientific community, that was thought to be the low-hanging fruit. It may not be the best target or may not be the best way uh, to develop a vaccine, but that seemed to be the best approach given the panic and the fear that was there. Yeah, yeah, there's that. You always have to factor in. It's like, we now we know what we know, but at the time it's like it, it was a pandemic. You, you very simply didn't know. It's, yeah, so you have to have some you kind of got to loosen the, the critique because it's low hanging fruit. Say that to somebody in like May, 2020, they'd say, yeah, it's the low hanging fruit. And it's the one we're going to take. So, all right. Yeah. So May, 2020, you would say, yeah, low hanging fruit, go for it. But to me, it, it also, you kind of banging your head against the wall though, because it's, this is the reason why everyone says, or you know, get people like yourself, or like Dr. Malone or Dr. McCullough, these things that are arising that I can only imagine the response would be, well, we didn't know it at the time, but that's, that's research. That's something we know is that it takes time because you have to see these completely unforeseen implications. And now we're all sitting here in March, 2022, and this is coming out. Well, yeah, of course we didn't see this. Now, then there's the whole, well, it was a pandemic. You can't necessarily wait. But so now, I mean, really, so it seems like the big ones are something like myocarditis, uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome. And now this, well, we don't even know what else is coming down the pipeline now. So, sorry, back to you, Dr. Barbara. Yeah, no, you're correct in saying that, um, you know, there has to be a balance. And that's why you do these kind of studies. But having said that, that it's not an excuse that we we didn't just because there was a pandemic, it doesn't mean that you end up taking decisions that will harming more than um, uh, you know being helpful. Mm-hmm. So the uh, FDA panel, when they were um, doing their hearings. In October of 2020, they actually, uh, David Fink, I think, was the one who was running that hearing. And he, he, he did make that observation that, you know, rolling out an, a weak or ineffective vaccine will actually do more harm than do good. And, um, and now the issue is that we just didn't give it to, and, and, and that's the difference between a vaccine which is being given to a largely healthy population who does not suffer from this disease versus any other drug 
that's being uh, given to people who are actually suffering from a disease, right? So you can't compare it to say, you know, a drug for cancer or a drug for um, or a vaccine for something, you know, that uh, uh, that's really um, deadly. So, so, so I think it's not an excuse. And I just hope that this doesn't become like our norm, that you create this environment of panic and fear, and under that, everything is justified. And, and the question, I mean, the reason I started off this um, podcast with the, the new findings about that human challenge study is that, you know, they, they were trying to get that approved um, fairly early on in the pandemic. And that study suggests very clearly that 50% of people, healthy people don't even get the disease despite being the virus in your face. So uh, did we really have to shut down or lock down our schools? Did we really have to subject our students and children to this? And, you know, it's becoming more and more clear that um, really not a single healthy child um, had actually died from COVID. And most of the healthy people have recovered from COVID. Now, of course, it is doubted that the vaccines may have uh, reduced symptoms and 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 but we actually don't have a comparison group and that's why uh, to your listeners I would appeal and hopefully you'll help me post that link absolutely is that hundred percent yeah no my part no yeah absolutely that especially people who are unvaccinated um, they need to take the survey and people who are unvaccinated and who got COVID need to describe what their symptoms were because the real comparison is for us to understand A, that people who never took the vaccine, um, have they gotten COVID as yet? Because if, you know, COVID has been around now for two years and if you are unvaccinated and for two years, it's not possible that you never got exposed unless you were really living in a bubble and staying at home. But if you've been going out and, you know, meeting people, it's likely that you've been exposed at some point or the other. So it's really um, interesting to know what's the subset of the population who uh, is unvaccinated but still hasn't gotten COVID. It's also very important to know that people who are unvaccinated and who got COVID, um, what were their symptoms? Uh, and obviously you can't compare in some ways a symptom from somebody who got infected with the alpha variant, with Delta variant. So we don't really have that. CDC didn't do a very good job of um, putting that out because that would be an apple to apple comparison. So if somebody got infected with the alpha variant, you need to compare their symptoms with the alpha variant infected person with similar health conditions. So you can't take a person with healthy person with an alpha variant with mild symptoms and a healthy, you know, a, a, a person with say diabetes with an alpha variant may have more severe symptoms, but at least then we know that diabetes was the risk factor. But you can't take a person with an alpha variant and a delta variant or an Omicron and then say, oh, your symptoms didn't differ or your symptoms differ or you were vaccinated. That's why you have less symptoms because we know that actually Omicron symptoms are much milder, whether or not you're vaccinated or not. And that's what is coming out of uh, you know, data from South Africa and other countries where 
initially um, they saw that even the unvaccinated were not getting any uh, more severe disease than the vaccinated. So I'm not sure if we can uh, fully claim that vaccines are, are indeed reducing your symptoms or hospitalization or death. And that kind of uh, very systematic study needs to be done. And it's, uh, it's possible that vaccines are, but we don't have that data. I had it in August 2020, which I imagine would have to have been alpha. I have no idea. And then I had it again in actually the last time we spoke. And if I got it a second time, then I, I think that would mean it would have to be Omicron. But yeah, no, I mean, I'll have, I'll have I don't know why I brought, none of that was important. I'll fill I'll happily fill out the survey and I'll put it on. Well, it's, it's very important. So you're okay. saying you got it the first time. Yes. How do you know you had it? Did you get tested? I, I got tested for my, yeah, I was working at a liquor store at the time and we had to go get tested and uh, it came so out. So you were positive by RT-PCR. Yeah. And I was like, oh, and I was, I was out for like a week. I didn't know what it was. I just thought I was sick, very tired and dehydrated, tired, 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 just sleeping, sleeping, sleeping. Um, and it was, yeah, but it, it came and went. Um, and then the second time, I only knew I had it because I was tested. I just, I didn't, I think I told you last time, I was like, I'm going to the gym every day. And you were like, Tommy, why are you doing that? <laughs> I was like, but, but I was fine. I, I think I had a headache one evening, but the, I don't even know if that was it. So, but on, so, yeah, so on right. Side, so yeah. That suggests that you were just as well protected from your prior infection. And in fact, your, um, um, your immune system did what it was supposed to do. And it would be, it, it would have been, so you were tested by RT-PCR the second time. Yes. And they were able to obviously um, give you a positive result to say that you were positive. Yeah. But you didn't have any symptoms. No. And And that's the other interesting thing from one of the, Several of the papers that I have now read, they uh, they've shown that people who um, who have symptoms um, after the infection, their virus uh, off the people who have symptomatic disease, and they take their virus and try and grow it. So, is it viable or not? They can only do it from forty percent of the people. And I have not been able to find a single study where they have taken the virus from a asymptomatic person, like you would be in your second time of infection, and that virus can be grown. So not a single time I've seen or not a single study that I've seen where virus from an asymptomatic person is viable. And the important thing is that even the virus from symptomatic people, only 40% of the time is viable. So that means your body, during the course of fighting that uh, infection, basically neutralizes uh, the virus. And then obviously in 40% of the cases, it cannot neutralize and those people and the virus from those people remains infectious. And so you know, not forgetting the role of our mucosal immunity. I mean, the whole reason why our uh, nose and our gut is lined with mucosa and, you know, fine hair and things like that is to trap these, especially your nose, right? Is 
it, it traps these pathogens and there are uh, immune cells in there that um, after trapping these pathogens, they train. And by um, preventing any exposure, you're also depriving your uh, immune system and actually your mucosal immune system is 80% of your immune system. So you're depriving your immune system from being trained. The other thing to keep in mind is that there are lymphoid organs such as the tonsils and adenoids that are very important in fighting off uh, respiratory illnesses. And um, there's an Australian study that after, which ha- which basically since, you know, tonsils are taken out, like, you know, they're told, oh, there's no function for tonsils, or it, at least it was thought, and they took them out and they found that children or people um, who don't have tonsils they're anywhere between 18 to 20 times more likely to be sick with respiratory illnesses compared to people who have their tonsils. So keep in mind there are 300,000 um, tonsillectomies or you know, 300,000 kids whose tonsils are removed in the U.S. alone. So obviously those kids are 18 times more likely to be uh, getting infected with respiratory illnesses compared to kids uh, who have their tonsils in, intact and the other lymphoid organ is adenoids. So, um, you I know, had, I, I had my tonsils removed when I was 24 and 2014. So I guess that would skew the data as well. I'm much more likely to get it, correct? Yes, you would probably much more likely to get it than, you know, if you haven't gotten your tonsils removed. So I'm not sure why tonsils for you were removed because... Um, it was it should have happened when I was a kid I had every year like clockwork just had the worst strep throat I mean and they had been telling me for years you got to get it removed you got to and I kept kicking it down the road and I think one year it was just so bad and I just graduated college and I had a couple months and I was like let's just do it and uh honestly though I've I don't think I've had a sore throat since then so it's kind of weird I don't know I don't know I don't, maybe I'm anomaly. Maybe I'm going to ruin the study. I don't know. No, I mean, you know, there are things that go bad. So we don't know if, you know, they if they removed the ton, your tonsils, hopefully they did some biopsy or some, you know, histology to see what was different in your tonsils or why were your tonsils so susceptible to getting infected. And, you know, obviously there are, uh, just like you know, if some people's heart goes bad, <laughs> it doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. It happens, but of course, you know that doesn't mean you can remove your heart just because. <laughs> yeah. In some people, it's going to go bad. Yeah. There's a function that that organ is doing, and uh, and we just can't assume yeah. that. Yeah. I don't know. Um, so, what can I do with with my podcast? Uh, for anybody listening, or then obviously it's social media, but primarily be through this because I think it's up to like nine thousand subscribers. What what do I need to post? How do I need to? What do I need to do? And what are the people that are willing to participate? What do they need to do? Participate in the survey. Sure. How can I help you in any possible way? You just tell. Oh, me. sure. I'll I'll send you a link okay. and then you post your um, podcast. Perhaps you could post that uh, material. 
the, the link to it so they know what the study is about and then if they're interested they can click on the link and we'll take them to the consent form and they can do it and i i mean it's again i cannot emphasize how important it is for both the vaccinated and the unvaccinated to fill out these surveys and especially the unvaccinated and especially people who are vaccinated who didn't get any adverse events so that we know for sure and of course people who got adverse events so everybody needs to fill this out young old you know with or without covid with or without vaccine and um the so the first part is focusing on that and the second part of that survey is focusing on the mental health so obviously uh, it seems like at least uh, there are a lot of people who uh, who remain unvaccinated were um subjected to a lot more mental health trauma than you know people who chose to get vaccinated and we saw a lot of um op-eds including our um uh, president who went and said that this was a pandemic of the unvaccinated and caused a lot of um um stir and you know, probably trauma for that class of people so i think it's important to figure this out and get it right so that hopefully we don't make this mistake again i think yeah that's that's to me is like the most important part is like whatever's happened over the last two years has has sucked what we can do though is look at it analyze it break it down try to reverse engineer it and go okay how do we how do we not do this again right and and what you're doing i mean again the studies that i'm pointing out to unfortunately they haven't you know the the mainstream media does not hype it just the way they hype other uh, studies looking at even the weekly ineffective vaccine and you know talking about how efficacious it was or how you know the boosters were helping they were not so they're they're ignoring this part of the science and they're focusing on part of the science that is perhaps not as robust and in or not pointing out to the caveats or the loopholes and this is how we make you know we learn in science that you have an event and then you try and tease it out what are the different aspects of it and we are learning that perhaps uh, mrna vaccines are not as uh, straightforward to design and to work with as uh, first thought and so instead of rushing into designing uh, mrna vaccines for every other indication under the sun we need to uh, look at the data which is coming out from this um, mass vaccination you know we we already have this data and uh, to to see whether what other um, effects or you know unintended consequences are are there before we jump on that bandwagon yeah. dr bargava anything else any other closing thoughts as as when you're here or when dr malone's here i'm in the passenger seat and i'm just i'm along for the ride um anything else important to touch on uh no i think let's keep it short and simple and the you know message being just about a couple of things and and i think it's uh thank you for uh 
hosting me this time so I could, you know, update you on the what's happening on the mRNA front. And, thank uh, you for coming on. It's, it's, don't thank me. Thank you for coming on. Um, absolutely. Hold on. I'll start recording in a second. Everybody, I will I'll splice this as well. I'll put the links to the survey in there. Vaccinated, unvaccinated, young, old. I'll do everything I can to make this happen. Please help out Dr. Bargava and um, everybody else out there. Thank you. Record.